kboo.fm and click on Community Events. KBOO hosts a monthly film series at the Clinton Street Theater called KBOO at the Clinton. This month, we'll screen the film Legong on Thursday, April 11th at 7 p.m. Legong is a rarely screened 1935 silent movie shot entirely in Bali with a Balinese cast, mixed with a new score by Clubfoot Orchestra and Gamelan Sekarjaya. Again, that's Legong, showing April 11th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Check this out. Hard Knock Radio coming at you. Bringing the noise. This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Number 1. News, views, and hip-hop. This is Sister Soldier on Hard Knock Radio. Listen closely. Que pasa, raza? This is Deuce Eclipse, the Oi Joaquin, your parte chino. Check it out. Listening to Hard Knock Radio. Hey, this is Patrice Russian. And whenever I'm in the Bay Area and I need good information and great radio, it's all about Hard Knock Radio. Up next on Hard Knock, we'll hear from the freshman congresswoman from Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley. Her first speech on the floor of the House of Representatives, she placed the blame on Donald Trump for a partial government shutdown that she said had caused a tsunami of hurt. Mr. Speaker, I rise today in opposition to the occupant of the White House. Mr. Trump, you took an oath, just as I did five days ago, to protect and defend the Constitution and the American people. Sir, you dishonor that oath. You devalue the life of the immigrant, the worker, and the survivor. I see right through you, and so do the American people. This has nothing to do with border security. Your shutdown, another Trump-generated crisis, has brought a tsunami of hurt to the American people. Strong words from Congresswoman Presley, sticking to her campaign promise to take on the president, speaking out on the behalf of government workers, low-income families, and the impacts of immigration policy. So today I rise to lift the voices of the unheard. I rise today on behalf of the families concerned about feeding their children because their WIC benefits will run dry. I rise today in solidarity with the thousands of workers with calloused hands and broken spirits working for no pay. I rise today in support of the survivor fleeing violent hands, seeking safety only to find the shelter door locked because of your shutdown. I rise today in support of the American people who believe in the promise of this nation and ask for honest pay for an honest day's work. Today I rise as one and I stand as thousands. Thank you and I yield back. The Republican residing officer briefly reprimanded Ayanna for her comments. Members are reminded to refrain from engaging in personalities toward the president. Again, that was U.S. Representative Ayanna Presley, a Boston Democrat, addressing Donald Trump on the House floor this past Tuesday. And this is Hard Knock on the Pacifica Network. Stay tuned. To all my heavy hustling, struggling, revolutionary, gang banging, chain ganging. I refuse to be a stereotype in your box Never want to try to be something I'm not I'm just a from the block If you got it twisted, stay blowing on green If you got it twisted on up DP's giving a RBG'd up And some gangster chunks Throw your fists up, homie, if you know what's up All my comrades putting in soldier work We rolling dirty with it, fully dedicated So real at the radio and never play it But that's cool, the enemy's supposed to hate it Freedom ain't gonna come till we regulate them That's why I'm in the dojo, not just for the video Really though, we really got beef with the bobo Never know when they gon' put you in a chokehold This is for you new For the radio Turn off the radio Turn off that bull Turn off the radio Turn off 
Turn off the radio. Turn off that boom. Freak, freak, y'all. Turn off the radio. People's radio. Yo, hang up. That's police. What's on the radio? Propaganda, mind control, and turning it on is like putting on the blindfold. Cause when you bring in the real, you don't get rotation. Let you take over the station. And yeah, I know it's part of their plans. They make us think it's all about party and dancing. Yo, it might sound good when you spin your rap, but in reality, don't nobody live like that. You wanna know what kind of I am? Let me tell you about the I'm not. I don't with the cops. Platinum don't mean that it gotta be high. I ain't gotta love it even if they play it a lot. You can hear it when you walk the streets. How many people they reach? How they use music? The teacher radio programming the figure speech. Don't sleep, cause you could be a radio freak. Freak, turn freak, off y'all. the radio. Turn off that boom. Freak, freak, y'all. Turn off the radio. Turn off that boom. Freak, freak, y'all. Turn off the radio. Radio, radio. People's radio, you on the air? I got a fat chain. I got a fat whip. I got a fan. Get off that bullshit. Crank up your speakers, your woofers, and your tweeters. Conectados, every set, every hood, barrio, barrio, y'all stand up, stay righteous, speaking to the thugs, one love, we know where y'all at, top, ground buffalo, it's a hard knock life, gotta pay your bills, they want a song about bling, but it ain't real, uh, we speak to the kids and the OGs, organize, mobilize, be the change you wanna see, 415's bumping, hard knock radio, brown buffalo, all up in your stereo, and to the youth, live life like it's golden, go dumb, go hard, but don't forget where you're going, we from the hood, so it's all to the good, let us know this what you're feeling is right, let's get this understood, it's only one reason why we here today, we trying to make real music so the people can relate, learning from this hard knock, slipping in these hard knocks, Listening to Hornock, questioning the Gorka, learning through these Hornocks, living for this hip hop, listening to Hornock, ripping to the Horsa, learning from the Hornocks, living in these Hornocks, listening to Hornock, questioning the Gorka, learning through these Hornocks, living for this hip hop, listening to Hornock, ripping to the Horsa. Hold me closer, 
previous recordings to her credit, it was her 2009 recording, If the Rains Come First, that vocalist and songwriter Somi really came to the attention of a lot of the world. Since then, with the recordings, the Lagos Music Salon, and Petite Afrique, Somi has gained universal praise and acknowledgement as a poetic storyteller whose astute observations of community, immediate community, and worldwide community have earned her references as the Miriam Makeba and Nina Simone of her generation. Somi, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me and for that kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure. I mean, since hearing the first note from your mouth the first time I heard you, I've been looking for a way to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Now, you have a very interesting background. I mean, when I first heard your name and I first heard your music, Illinois was not a place that immediately came to mind when thinking of where you may be from. So um, so tell us your beginning. Well, um, I'm half Ugandan and half Rwandan, uh, so from East Africa. Uh, but I grew up mostly in Illinois, but a few years in Zambia as well. And I currently live in Harlem, New York City. Ah. Um, so your parents uh, from Rwanda and Uganda, were they mm -hmm. musical? Are they musical? Um, my mother, I always credit her as being sort of my first teacher of voice because she just has a real love of songs. She's a beautiful, a beautiful voice, actually. Uh, and she, she's a wonderful keeper of, of a lot of folk songs from Western Uganda, so she taught me a lot of that music growing up, and um, and a lover of the arts, both of my parents. Uh, my father was someone who encouraged my exploration of of the arts. You know, I don't think like most, you know, probably like most parents, but really definitely like most immigrant parents, they're not going to say, oh, go off and become an artist, but they love the idea of be you know me becoming a, a well-rounded individual you know and, and having some exposure in the arts and 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 obviously studying other things as well um but in retrospect i'd like to believe that they they saw my interest in in words and sound from a very young age it's not even that i'd like to believe they told you know my mother says that you know <laughs> that i was always singing and that i was always so I always say that the greatest gift that they gave me was that when I did choose the path of a professional artist, 
they never said no. You know, they asked a lot of questions, but they never said no. Yeah. Well, tell us, what, what put you on that path, and how did your parents' support of that really help? What put me on that path? Well, I think, you know, I spent my, my undergraduate studies were in um, cultural anthropology and African studies, and I think I was really preoccupied with trying to get back to this cultural self that I thought had been dislodged in some way by growing up in the West and not back home. Um, And so all of that information that is normally implicit just because you're in a place or of a place becomes explicit to the, you know, transnational and immigrant child. And so I was really interested in how do I get back to all of that knowledge that my parents perhaps, you know, not even perhaps, but did get to take for granted because it was implicit information for them, you know. Um, And so I was really just preoccupied with, like, getting back to that, not to say that they didn't encourage and and, and teach as much as they could culturally and, and instill a real pride in who we who we are. Um, from a very young age, but just, you know, there are things that you don't anticipate, especially when you're the first person to, to raise children abroad um, from, from a family. So I would say that initially um, it was about getting back to that center of my cultural self. Um, and so I spent time in Kenya and Tanzania after college. At the time, I was planning on becoming a medical anthropologist, and I, I spent time um, working in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and then, but what that did for me—that journey, um, being a young adult, having about you know a year to really not be a tourist, coming for the holidays and visiting relatives—but really made me look more closely at um, at who I am, both as an African in America and and as an American in Africa, um, and really kind of come to peace with both sides of myself. Um, and, you know, and I think, and lean into that, that tension in a different kind of way, not with all of the questions, but with a like, well, how do I carve out my own sort of space of belonging? And I always say it, it seems rather cliche, but, you know, it was one of those things where when you know where you're from, then you really know where you want to go. Once you, once you know where you're from, right, you know where you want to go. And for me, that was towards the music. It suddenly was like, oh, of course I want to be a singer. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think it was always a fantasy as a young girl, as a child. Um, but because I didn't have any professional artists in my in my family, I didn't, you know, there was, like I said, an appreciation of the arts, but most of my family was, you know, in medicine and, and academia. So I didn't have this kind of path that I could really kind of look at and say, oh, yeah, okay, I can be that person or I can, I know how to get to what it is to be a, a singer. Right. Um, and I had never really taken my voice seriously, to be honest. I didn't really begin studying voice until, you know, I was 22. And so, um, so basically after that time, I decided to de- defer graduate school and to move back to New York uh, or come to New York. I had not lived here yet, but I said, okay, I'll either move to New York or to Paris because those are the two cities I'd always sort of fantasized about living in. Um, and I chose New York because at the time I didn't speak French and I decided, you know, let me come here and at least I know I can get a job because I have a degree and I can survive, right? And so um, I got to New York City and I started studying and I started meeting, you know, it's one of those things where when you meet one musician, you meet thousands because it's a network. Right, right. <laughs> and so I just went out and tried to hear people and, and meet people and eventually pieced together um, I mean it's a much longer story but eventually over time pieced together a a core group of musicians who are really have become my family um, and and have slowly discovered my voice because as I said I I was just beginning to um, study voice and and also I'd always been a writer, I guess. I was always a like I'd always write poetry, but it was a very private act. And so, what I recognize now is that was sort of the beginning of of my songwriting practice. Um, because at times I would try to like you know I did play the cello as a child, so at the times I would try to like you know 
sing a poem that I had written accompanying myself with the cello, but I was in no way, you know, aware that I was then, it was like the early stages of starting to be a songwriter. Right. Um, so, you know, I would like to believe that my path has been really organic in that way. It was really just about choosing to say yes to, um, to what felt good and really singing is what felt good. And then using my voice and, and write and crafting stories, you know, that's what feels good. And that's, really what helped me continue to move forward and in terms of your second question about how did my parents um i'm not sure how you phrase it but uh, how, how did their support um or or right. yeah how supportive were they and how did their support um help you well i think initially as i said they questioned it you know they questioned my plans they didn't question the the gift of art you know they they questioned uh, how I was going to survive. <laughs> you know, how are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to do all of these things? You know, because I was, you know, I did have a few years in New York where I was waiting tables, and that was very hard for them to consider since I had an education and I had all these other, these other opportunities, and I was, you know, essentially stepping away from that and saying, no, I'm going to focus on, on making art. Um so they had a lot of questions, but I think, and now my mom, when she comes to my shows, you know, and, you know, my father passed some years ago, so he didn't see as much as my mom has been able to see in terms of my own kind of journey and trajectory as an artist. But, you know, my mother, you know, she comes to a show now, she's just like so happy to say, you know, I was always singing, I was always, <laughs> so I, I, I think what I get out of them, her, well, for both of them to have not said no, is that it's just one of those moments where I always feel like our parents actually know us before we know ourselves, you know, because, you know, she asked me when I was a sophomore in college, why don't you also do a degree in music? And at the really? time, I, and I said, mom, what are you talking about? And <laughs> she was like, I'm already doing two majors. I'll be here forever. Why are you saying that? And she said, you have so much music in your heart. And I always think about that moment. And I think, what a, you know, what a blessing to, I mean, I keep saying the word gift because I always feel like everything has been a gift and is, you know, like everything that has conspired on this, on this journey in my favor has been such a gift, you know, because we don't see those things for ourselves. And then suddenly they're in the room with you, you know? Um, and, I, I always think about that moment and she, you know, her pushing back and saying, you have so much music in your heart. It's that moment of like, she knew me before I knew myself. Mm-hmm. I had to go through a few other years of other experiences to then come back to that moment and be like, yes, actually I do have music in my heart. So my parents support was and continues to be paramount and, um, so central to who I am because really I just want to make them proud and, and, and for them to know that their sacrifices as you know immigrants in this country at, you know leaving behind all of what they knew and all of the family that we have back home to make to give opportunities for to their children um, I want them to always be assured that that wasn't in vain My skin is black My forehead Mm-hmm. 
You know, you mentioned your parents uh, as immigrants, and one of the things that comes to mind in hearing that is the uh, the song you composed called "Alien," um, which was based on Sting's uh, "Englishman in New York." Tell us, uh, tell us how that song came to you, and what were the reactions, or what are the reactions to it when people hear it? Well, I mean, it came to me because. Sting sang it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, your particular lyrics to it. <laughs> no, you know, I think as a, as a young girl, I always found the fact that we call foreigners aliens in this country very bizarre, you know, especially as a child, you, you know, when you discover the definition of alien, you're like, well, why does my sister have a car? I was born in the States, but a lot of my older siblings, my older siblings were not. So I was like, well, why... <laughs> Did they have to carry around cards that say they're aliens? You know, I didn't understand it, and I thought it was just so bizarre. Um, and I think I just didn't know how to articulate why I thought it was bizarre. You know, I think I was just like, but they're not aliens. You know, it's just the way that you see things, in, you know, the way that children see the world, you know, doesn't that doesn't make sense. Right. Um, and I remember when that song came out, and... I thought, oh, Sting must think it's strange too, you know. Um, but then, at, now as as an adult and in reflecting, I, I really when I started writing that, when I started writing Petite Afrique, which was it was really meant to be a meditation on the dignity of of um, African immigrants in in Harlem, the, the dignity of all immigrants. But looking specifically, um, I was inspired specifically by this long-standing African immigrant community here in Harlem that rapidly disappearing in the face of gentrification um and you know so when i started writing this, this body of work i didn't know you know who would end up in the white house and i didn't know how under attack immigrants were going to feel and um, muslims were going to feel and, and this is a predominantly west african predominantly muslim predominantly francophone community of folks um along 116th and so you know i started thinking about um that otherness that's like squarely placed on, you know, immigrants, specifically black immigrants who are oftentimes not a part of the national dialogue around immigration rights, unfortunately. Um, and so I was, I don't know, I started thinking about seeing song, Alien, that whole, the whole conversation I had had with myself as a child. And, um, but what I was, what I realized in, 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 in his song, it's a very different experience as a Westerner, right? right. As, um, as a Brit to come around and drink his tea and walk down Fifth Avenue with his cane. And he's in a way mocking, you know, making fun of the fact that he's called an alien, but it's a much light, it's a lighter kind of interpretation of the immigrant experience, right? Because he knows he can always kind of go back to a position of privilege. And that's not any shade towards Sting at all, because I actually adore him 
right. as a writer and a voice um, and, and, and a musician. I, I, I think, but it just was a very stark experiential difference. And I thought, well, I, I'd like to take that same song and disrupt the lyrical content in a way that sheds light on the you know darker no pun intended <laughs> experience of of african immigrants of immigrants of color um and so that's why the the song as it is alien i i recall, i called it alien on my album um it's a it's a darker kind of more brooding um interpretation of that song because really our journey is much more complicated and full of um all types of other tensions you know that um those who come from western european countries frankly don't always have those that their experience is completely different so it was really about shedding light on that and also um still you know questioning why we call other human beings aliens right right you know um you also you mentioned the uh, gentrification that's going on um where you're living but also it gives us a chance through a song like the gentry to really take a look at and examine the gentrification that's going on around this country sure. um t- tell us about the gentry how did that particular song begin for you did it begin with uh, with a personal experience or just an observation and thoughts of what's happening? Um, so it began, actually, the lyric is, um, it's sort of written as a work song, and so it's, it's a bit repetitive in that way, um, lyrically, but it's, you know, the main lyric is, the gentry came and I can't play my drums no more. And it really was, um, in response to um, a real-life legal battle um, here in Harlem, there's a Marcus Garvey Park, which is between 120th and 124th. I don't know. I mean, I'm talking about Manhattan geography. I'm not sure if your listeners know. But anyway, it's in Harlem on the east side, the eastern part of, of central Harlem. Um, and Marcus Garvey Park is this place where, for years, literally since like the 50s or 60s, every... Um, Saturday, every first Saturday, I want to say, um, people would gather from the community, Africans, African-Americans, Caribbean folks, just everybody from the area who wanted to come and play drums, which is obviously attributed to drum circles of African culture, you know, and and what that means community-wise, spiritually, and all of that politically what what it actually means and how we would communicate with our drums um and so that is has been going on for many many years and um generations really and so when the when the neighborhood began to gentrify and this is you know it's been happening for a while now but it's really in full flight i would say in, in harlem now um and it, I, I talk. I mean, the reason it, it made such a it's such an important thing for me to talk about in Harlem because when you think about Harlem, in sort of our um, the cultural undis- awareness globally of what Harlem is and what it means um, to most people, you think about like the nexus of of, of blackness, really. Right. <laughs> so to think of Harlem as being gentrified sounds like some sort of oxymoron in a way, um, and so. That particular drum circle, when the neighborhood began to be gentrified, uh, people started complaining. The new neighbors began to complain about noise on those Saturdays. And, you know, the city shut it down. And this is something that has been going on for years. And, you know, I think this is when people have a problem with gentrification. It's not like Harlem hasn't always been diverse. It has been. But the issue is when people show up and then don't want to honor the cultural space that makes it the neighborhood that it is, right? Right. And so um, the gentry, that particular song, was inspired by how people show up in the space and then don't appreciate the, don't appreciate, you know, the cultural lineage and the history of of where they decided to call their new home. And um, so, yeah, and I, I just decided to write it as a work song because I feel like it, it, it challenges all of us to to do better, to do more work, to kind of um, 
create more of a, an equilibrium in these spaces so that, okay, it can be diverse, but it doesn't have to, like, so now that drum circle doesn't happen anymore, and, you know, you can find some people on 125th Street, but it's much smaller because it's not a park, and right. it's a sidewalk, you know. Yeah, that um, that particular song was one that um, I identified with because of some of the same things that are happening here in Oakland that mm-hmm. are related to in that song. I mean, the drum circle that you, you just mentioned that was complained about and has now disappeared. That same thing has happened here. Um, here in Oakland, there was a, a folks who complained about a church that has been around for over a century um, and people complaining about the church's uh, choir rehearsal being right. you know too noisy and so when i heard the gentry it immediately struck a chord <laughs> you know right um it right. was something to immediately identify with Now, you as a songwriter, I really, really love your voice. But one thing that intrigues me equally is you as a songwriter and some of the uh, some of the subjects that you touch upon, such as, you know, the gentry. But um, you also write, you know, songs of love, community love, individual love, um, which are also appreciated. When did you, um, you mentioned before about writing poetry, but when did you really first recognize yourself as a songwriter? You know, people ask me that question, and I just feel like because I've always in some way identified myself as a writer, I don't know really when it I think the first time I called myself a song I could I could call myself a songwriter was when I actually had like a form you know of a song and not just a poem um and that was you know soon after I came to New York and once I decided that I wanted to pursue this path I began to try to write songs and I think um you know I didn't know I really didn't know what I was doing back then, but I, I, I think it's just been a um, a, a process, you know. Uh, so I don't know that I can say that there was this moment that I was like, yeah, now I'm a, a songwriter. Right. I think 
it was just when I started really singing my poetry, I would say that, as opposed to, but it, but the biggest shift was that it went from being this very private act of me kind of just speaking my heart to the page mm-hmm. by myself. I, I never would even read it out loud. It was a very private thing for myself. Um, you know, in college, there'd be these like poetry slams I would never share. And, uh, and so when it became like, well, what am I going to sing? I just started trying to sing poetry, really. I, would, I, I always think of it, in, and I think in the same, it's the same process in a way. Um, but obviously it's complicated, you know, the, the, the poetry is complicated by melody and rhythm and, and cadence and all of these other things, which right. is part of the, the, the joy, the excitement of it, you know, trying to put the puzzle together. Well, since your poetry wasn't something that you had shared before, was there any um, any apprehension when it came to allowing others to hear it? Yes, absolutely. I had to do um, a lot of work personally, um, spiritually, emotionally on just, first of all, feeling as though I had something to say that people cared to listen to. Secondly, um, that I had a voice that people cared to hear the music through or those songs, you know, sung by. Um, And thirdly, just to have the courage to show up on stage and be vulnerable um, in that way and be, uh, avail yourself for whatever it is, criticism, watching eyes, like, (laughs) like watchful eyes, like all of all of that that shows up when you're on stage, you know, I had to really get past um, a lot of self-doubt and anxiety. I mean, and that's something I think that, to be completely honest, it's something that stays with me. I mean, it's something I, I'm never, I'm always, uh, I think I'm always, because my path hasn't been so um, A to B, if you will, like I didn't go to conservatory and do all of this kind of more a traditional route of preparation for this moment or these these moments and this journey um so there's always that second guessing of of myself that does show up in the room but you know but i've i've done a lot of work on a personal level emotionally spiritually to just not get in my own way with that self-doubt, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to just show up for, show up where I, just to, to be okay starting where I am. And um, over time, that line moves, you know. What, as you mentioned earlier, the moving to New York, you came into contact with a whole world of musicians. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of folks that I see... Um, on your recordings are folks who I really admire for what they do. You know, Otis Brown III, um, Ambrose Akinmusir, um, my man Etienne Charles, Ben Williams. What, mm-hmm. um, in gaining your own confidence, um, how did working with these musicians assist that? And... Mm-hmm. What was um, like? What was your approach, and when it came to working with others, musicians like this who had also already been established? Well, I'll say initially, um, I, I think what I'll say about generally this like jazz community that I found myself inside of, and 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 in a way, kind of maybe snuck into the room, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I would say, <laughs> you know, what I love about jazz musicians is is there's a usually the especially the the great ones many of whom you just mentioned most all of whom you just met you know those four are part of that um they have a voracious musical appetite and point of view and when i first got here i wasn't sure what type of music it was going to be or what you know um and so i was going out and i wasn't necessarily in that like looking for jazz musicians. But once I did finally begin to connect with um, different types of musicians, I found that the jazz musicians, because of that kind of music, that, that, that array of, of 
voca- musical vocabularies that they usually possess, um, I found that they could go anywhere with me, right? So if I wanted to take it, you know, to a jazz place, great. If I wanted to take it to a, uh, you know, an, the African place, then great. If you want to take it to a soul place, great. Like they can always find what that, the nuances. I mean, and I don't know, that's just, that's not just jazz musicians, that's any great musician. Um, and so the improvisation inside of jazz became this sort of metaphor for my own journey and for my own socialization, right? As this African girl child socialized in the Midwest uh, and then, but from Uganda and Rwanda and is, you know, now lives between New York and, and obviously travels internationally as a, as a musician and just like this kind of global citizenship. So you're always sort of improvising and reconstructing identity. And I think that's what jazz, the improvisational aspects of jazz felt like and but because I kind of as I mentioned earlier I played the cello I studied that for most throughout my childhood I was coming from this classical form and I wasn't familiar with improvisation I didn't know like how to place that in performance Mm -hmm. right and so what I will say about all of those musicians and you know my band generally is that they have been wonderful teachers and have really encouraged me to stretch in a way that I mean you know even just 10 years ago, I wasn't, you know, I, I, five years ago, I wasn't. And, but they constantly challenged me to take more risks on stage um, and to reach for other vocabularies on stage. And I, I am hugely indebted to, to them for that, you know, for, for really giving me a certain type of freedom to really be a part of the freedom that is improvisation and the freedom of the improvisation that I believe the, the genre of jazz explicitly demands that of everybody on the bandstand, you know, and so we're all in conversation with each other, and um, yeah, and I would say for the most part, I just feel like they've been wonderful teachers and really pushed me in, in ways that I'm not sure that I would have had I gone a different sort of route. Um, but, uh, so yeah. <laughs> okay. hope I've answered the question. Indeed you have. Who were some of your music influences? My music influences um, and wait, let, of, let me rephrase that. A long list. <laughs> well, let me rephrase that Be- because your music touches on so much. Um, as I mentioned, there's the the um, you know the human relation aspect. There's the political aspect. Um, so not just who are some of your musical influences, but what influences go into you creating your music? Um, what influences go into me creating my music? not just musical ones. Um, Well, I think I'm interested in being a witness, right? And I think, especially these last two records, Petit Afrique and the Lagos Music Salon, those albums are my most explicitly anthropological, if you will. And I think that's been really exciting um, for me because of, the fact that I have, I did come from that kind of, I mean, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, my undergraduate degree, one of them was in anthropology, and so it feels like I finally can kind of take all of that information, all of the the learning, whether it was formal or informal, and kind of, I've been able to apply it to my practice, my creative practice as a writer and and as a a vocalist. Um, And so, yeah, I would say the things that inspire me most, therefore, are people. Like, the place, I'm always trying to articulate where I am, you know, and, and the people that make the where something magical, you know. Right. Well, Somi, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I look so forward to having more conversations with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, truly appreciate the support. Well, thank you as well. And um, again, I appreciate what you do musically, and thank you for taking the time out to have this conversation. Thank you, Greg. All right. Be well. Shout out to and Davey D. Yeah, I feel me here. Yeah. Morning down at Hard Knock Radio. Hard Knock Radio. Kind of crazy, though. Uh, what was that?
Oakland stand up. Yeah. Ensemble Big Now Wolves. Yeah. Real Talk Radio. You and I rocking with the best in the West. West Coast. Monday through Friday. Sing it, Chris. East
You're listening to KBOO Portland. Up next, The Struggle with Alyssa. KBOO Community Radio starts our spring membership drive starting April 8th. And before that, we'd love to hear from you directly about why you support KBOO. My name is Mo, a KBOO volunteer, and I support KBOO because I grew up with KBOO. It's part of my life, and I feel having a community outlet like KBOO is so important because it creates a more vibrant community and a place where different ideas are not only heard but honored. Why do you support KBOO? Call us and let us know at 503 231 8032 extension 302 to leave a voicemail or tag us with your support on your social media posts. And thank you for supporting KBOO. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the world premiere of Jump co-produced by Confrontation Theater in the Milagro Theater. The play runs from March 21st through April 13th at the Milagro Theater in Portland. Jump is the story of a 20-something who is reeling from the death of her mother. She is looking for solace and a good place to vape, but what she finds is a journey of self-discovery. Again, that's Jump, every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from March 21st through April 13th at the Milagro Theater, 525 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Hello to all KBOO listeners. This is Alyssa Pariah, your friendly neighborhood agitator. This is KBOO.FM 90.7 FM. And I hope that everyone has been doing well. Uh, I know this week has been rough for a lot of people. It seems like every day in the news cycle is more bad news. Uh, But there is hope on the horizon. In Portland, we are lucky enough to be able to host uh, one of the troublemaker schools. And I know that you may be wondering, what is a troublemaker school? Well, you are all so lucky to be able to hear uh, directly from one of the people who helped to organize troublemaker schools here and all over and can talk a little bit about uh, the political importance of it. For some background, for people who don't know, Troublemaker School is a project 